0: Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray. Adam Bailo will be joining me in just a moment to walk through all of the week's security news. And uh, we also have a special guest this week. Former CISA director Chris Krebs will be joining us to talk about some recent developments in China that have massive implications for Western companies doing business there. Uh, This week's show is brought to you by Trail of Bits, and Trail of Bits' Dan Guido uh, will join us this week to talk about the security and safety of AI systems. Uh, Trail of Bits is always, you know, kind of jumping on the new tech trends. They did a lot of interesting work on blockchain tech, and even though I'm not a believer in that ecosystem, you know, the work sounded like it was fun. Uh, But over the last couple of years, they've built a consulting practice around AI systems as well. And Dan will join us to talk about why AI safety is something people aren't putting enough thought into. And uh, yeah, maybe we need to start defining what these systems are supposed to do uh, or supposed to be doing in order to pare back some of the unintended consequences we're seeing uh, out of them, right? Uh, So that is coming up later but first up it is time for a check of the week's security news with our good friend Adam Boileau from CyberCX and Adam the uh, Germans are prosecuting a bunch of former executives uh, behind FinFisher which was you know uh, uh, formerly Gamma Group. It's the spyware it was one of the early ones that first you know got a lot of attention from groups like Citizen Lab Um, and yeah finally we're seeing some charges here.
1: Yeah, the companies themselves uh, actually did go bankrupt uh, a couple of years back, so they're going after some of the people behind and looking into, amongst other things, you know how they circumvented German export controls, European Union export controls uh, around spyware. They had a subsidiary, I think, in like Bulgaria or something that they were using to sell stuff into, you know, Turkish secret police, for example. Um, and so, yeah, the Germans are uh, going to go after them uh, for that kind of, you know, circumventing the intent of the law, even if uh, you know they tried to maneuver around it um, with uh, various shenanigans Uh, but yeah it's nice to see you know some justice perhaps uh, coming the way of of the gamma group slash uh, finn fisher people
0: yeah and of course you know this was one that they got hacked right like they got owned pretty bad (laughs) uh, by phineas fisher and that was one of the things that that cracked all of this open but you know they were sort of nso before nso right like that's how i kind of think of them these days
1: yeah, they were certainly a pretty early pioneer in that sort of commercial spyware for intelligence and police and so on. Um, and the fact that they were based in Germany, a country that really has, you know, pretty low tolerance for that kind of thing, yeah. always struck me as a bit weird.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had a lot of legitimate customers as well as not so legitimate ones. You know, they they, they were selling it to people they should have sold it to as well as people they shouldn't, right? So yeah. it was back in the day before people really had to think, oh, you know, should I buy this spyware? You know, me as a legitimate like law enforcement agency based in New Zealand, you know, should I buy this or do I need to worry that they're also selling this stuff to death squads, right? Like that is, that is something that people ask themselves now and didn't back then, but it's interesting to see movement on that. Um, What else has been going on? So over the last week, Everyone's been in a huge flap over the fact that there are some new top-level domains coming, zip and mov. You know, .dot mov, right? And of course, you know, people are like, "Oh, but you know, mov is a movie file format, and zip it's going to lead to you know uh, lots more phishing." I don't buy it, uh, personally, right? Like, I know it's been the the cool thing to be uh, screaming about on uh, on social media over the last week or so, but I'm just not buying that this is really going to get much for people doing phishing campaigns because people click on stuff even when it doesn't have a .zip
1: domain, right? Like it doesn't make much difference. Exactly, yes, exactly. Like it's hard to get excited about .zip when people click on all sorts of other things and we've got heaps of techniques already uh, for convincing people to click on stuff. And I guess I'd also point out we have .com and those of you who use DOS will remember (laughs) .com is an executable format that's been around for quite a long time. And so, uh, Command file, I, I believe is the official name. Yes, yeah, exactly. Like As old, uh, an old .com. person,
0: I feel like I can, I, I should share this knowledge with the, the young folks <laughs> actually, who might be listening.
1: The, the com is actually a really cool format because you just straight up put it into memory and jump to the beginning and job done. Like there's no linking involved. Like it's a uh, you know. But you have size sweet.
0: there's size limits on .dot com. There's right? size yeah.
1: limits because it's sized to the original DOS memory segments of 64k. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like super great file format for for writing executables. But uh, yeah, we I'm not excited about .zip.
0: No, no, it's not a big deal, and uh, I think we can, we can all just move on. But, uh, you know, Lily Hay Newman uh, actually wrote this up for Wired and did a really good job, like, collecting a few different perspectives. But, you know, really, if we were to say that our security is at all dependent on the letters that make up TLDs, (laughs) like, you know, just know. Exactly right. Just
1: know. Call me when there's a .exe because I'd like to buy one of those, but uh, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But even then, like, I just, I don't know. It'd
1: just be for comedy, not for actual technical hacking.
0: But users don't really pay much attention to things like file extensions. It's, just sort of ridiculous, I think, that people think this would uh, this would make a much of a much of a difference. Now, Adam, uh, we've mentioned it a few times on the show uh, in in recent months, but Section Seven Hundred Two of the of, of Pfizer is coming up for renewal. It's 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 going to expire at the end of the year, right? And it's coming up for renewal, and you know we're doing the same dance that we did some years ago when it first came up for renewal. You know, eventually it got renewed at the last at the last moment, but. You know, it was due to sunset. That sunset's coming in in December this year. A rather inconvenient story for people who want to reauthorize this uh, has broken. The FBI, and and man, I've even been saying, like, I'm sure they're using it to do good stuff, but I'm also sure they've been curiosity searching the 702 data set. And sure enough, we've got a a government report come out uh, that says that the FBI was just curiosity searching the absolute crap out of the 702 data set. Apparently, they've taken some compliance steps since. This apparently relates to a period in 2020 and 2021. But it looks like their compliance controls on 702 data searches were basically non-existent. Like there's even a part in this report where they asked some FBI investigator, why did you search these 13 names? And they're like, I don't remember. That was like a couple (laughs) of years ago. And, you know, that, that sort of lack of paperwork on these searches is just, you know, insane
1: yeah it, it certainly is i mean i've always been kind of you know like foreign intelligence um you know da- that as a foreign intelligence data set it sounds super useful i would always assume that the u.s were collecting that but when it's getting used for like in this case they were searching for you know people who were at protests or people who were um uh, involved in you know the the January 6th, storming of capital and Capitol, you and know, pretty clearly domestic things in some cases. Well, but I
0: mean, they would argue that they're looking for, you know, foreign links to these, you know, to the George Floyd prote- protests, to the J6 stuff. Like, are there foreigners, you know, pulling the strings of these protests? And like, okay, fair enough. If you want to do a tightly targeted investigation of that, like, have at it. But just yeeting a list of names into, you know, a 702 data set, that, 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 that does not seem
1: right. Yeah, but that's how you get your 702 data taken away from you, by doing stuff like that. And, you know, the FBI has great power. And as it says, great responsibility comes with that. And they have not been doing that consistently, it appears. And super inconvenient timing uh, for them, given that it's up for renewal again. Because, like, some of this stuff just sounds sloppy. And when you, you know, when you go to the pub with spooks, and you hear about all the paperwork they have to do and all the oversight and all the controls and all the training they have to go to. Like, it must be kind of galling. Oh, dude. Like,
0: the same thought occurred to me because I've known people who've worked at, you know, the big SIGINT agencies, and the idea that they could just YOLO it and just throw names into these and and selectors into these things without actually having to do any paperwork, yeah, no, that's not how it works.
1: Yeah, so I I would be pretty grumpy if I was them at the, you know, if the FBI gets their toys taken away because you know, connecting foreign segments is kind of what they do over there in in Spookville and having law enforcement, you know, cock it up for you must be just, it must stick in the craw. I mean, FBI is kind of intelligence community as well, right? Because, you know,
0: in in Australia, at least, we've got ASIO and um, uh, the AFP, right? So we've kind of split those functions a little bit, but, you know, the FBI does both, right? So they are are IC. Um, I mean, ultimately, though, like, I, I still don't necessarily agree that, you know, court, issued warrants for every search are what's needed here um that's that's a harder argument to sustain in light of this report like it really is but what they clearly should have been doing is gating every search through some sort of internal oversight procedure and that just hasn't happened so you just you just really wonder what's going to happen when it's time to reauthorize this and you know we might get to the spot that i was hoping we would which is that um you know it gets reauthorized but with more stringent oversight let's hope that's where it goes
1: yeah, like I feel that's the natural outcome. Um, it is a bit hard to. Re- so I went and when I was preparing for this, I went and read the like Intel.gov summary of you know Section seven hundred two and what the powers are meant before and how they're meant to be controlled, and it presents a very reassuring picture hmm. that does not match the reality of the situation. <laughs> and that's know. not how it should be. You know, tearing up the whole thing seems a bit dramatic as well. Well, I
0: mean, you were saying before, oh, you know, if you were IC, you'd be worried that the FBI has ruined it, and you're not going to get your 702 renewal. I think, you know, I think 702 renewal is still going to happen because it's too important. But maybe the FBI will just lose access to it, which would <laughs> maybe, suck yeah. for the FBI.
1: Yeah, it certainly would.
0: Anyway, anyway, staying with the with the FBI, um, this is interesting because we we wondered whether or not this would happen, but. Since the takedown of the Genesis market, it looks like cyber criminals haven't just flocked to the next one because they're feeling a little bit nervous that it might also (laughs) be run by the FBI, right? So Alexander Martin has a write-up for the record here that, that explores this.
1: Yes, yeah, so when they took down the Genesis Market, the uh, dot onion version of the of the site actually stayed active and has remained active. And there was someone claiming to be a Genesis Market administrator like posting on various other crime forums saying, "Hey, it's fine. You know, don't worry about it. The onion's still up. It's all good. We good, buddies." Um and people have been a little bit sus, but as you say, the the historical trajectory is you take out one market and then you also take out the place they're going to go in advance so you can get everybody as they sign up, you know, perhaps when their OPSEC isn't so great, etc. So, like, this kind of, you know, fear and panic and uncertainty in those ecosystems is exactly what we want as well. We've long talked about, you know, getting into their social and trust systems and just making them, you know, adding friction to doing business. So, you know, it's all good outcome.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, you know, this whole ecosystem might recover at some point, but then if they whack it again, like, it just builds that di- distrust and builds it and builds it. Funnily enough, last week, Tom Uren, our, our uh, 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 wonderful writer who writes the Seriously Risky Business newsletter, he wrote a, a terrific piece uh, called Crime Phones Are a Cop's Best Friend. <laughs> really looking at the history of those, you know, encrypted crime phones, right, from when they were actually a legitimate problem for law enforcement to now being a net gain, to law enforcement because through some of these operations where they've infiltrated these crime phone networks, they've collected intelligence on criminal networks that they never thought they would ever get. They've identified a bunch of new sort of Mr. Big style targets and whatnot. And crazily enough, like it doesn't seem like criminals have lost trust in that ecosystem yet, which is just a party time bonanza uh, for law enforcement. So that's a really interesting read. I'll link through to that. Uh, in this week's show notes. And we also spoke about that report on last week's Seriously Risky Business uh, uh, podcast. Did you did you have a read of this one, Adam?
1: Yeah, it's great work from Tom. And it just, you know, it makes you feel good, you know, thinking, you know, reading the history all put together like that. And, you know, the... Especially as a, like, 90s cypherpunk kid, the idea that centralising all of the criminals onto one set of, you know, cypherpunk-grade phones actually just makes them just makes them a target, makes it easier to get warrants, makes it easier, as you say, to discover other targets you didn't even know about because the criminals have self-selected into a place, you know, where you can intercept their stuff. It's just a... the. I know the irony is is delicious.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great write up. I'd really recommend people go read it. Uh, what else have we got here? Oh yeah, uh, Andy Greenberg has a write up on the history of Turla. Turla, of course, the group behind the Snake malware, which was taken down by the FBI uh, a week or two ago. And you know, he's just really looked at how, in a lot of ways, the Turla group were pioneers in a lot of APT-like activity, right? And, and it's, you know, you read through this and you, you have to admit that they have a pretty impressive resume as a, you know, Russian intelligence outfit doing, uh, doing you know, uh, pretty cool stuff, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, if anything, they're kind of the OG APT crew I mean, of government hackers out doing government business with interesting technology um, and in interesting places. The uh, Those of you who've been around long enough to remember uh, Moonlight Maze, yeah. this was the, like, late 90s... Uh, investigation by the American authorities into, you know, widespread compromise of government systems by exactly this crew, you know, they've been around for a long time. uh, And, you know, their tooling is good. um, Their techniques are good. They are the the definition of persistence. uh, And yeah, it's nice. um, In some ways, it's kind of nice seeing them getting some respect for, you know, some of the pioneering work that they did.
0: Now, Adam, uh, Microsoft has released a report on business email compromise. Adam, uh, they released that on the 19th of this month. And it's just a good roundup of activity in BEC. I suppose what's interesting about it is that there's a lot of BEC tools as a service available now. It is very much an established ecosystem. And according to Microsoft's research, it's actually growing as well. And as much as we like to point to ransomware as as the big threat, and certainly when it comes to disrupting business operations, it is. But when we look at monetary losses, BEC just absolutely whips ransomware, right? And, And this is a problem that is hanging around.
1: Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. I and mean, BEC is not a sophisticated crime type, I suppose, and that's one of the reasons we sort of, you know, we as security professionals look down on it a bit. Like it's. Just I was I was teasing
0: you before we recorded, calling yes. you a a latte sipping cybersecurity elite. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly, and you know, it's you know we're talking billions. The FBI said, I think what uh, two point seven billion dollars worth of uh, of losses attributable to business email compromise. Like it is really big. And it's one of those things that, you know, it's, you know, ransomware, we've got some options, you know, for how we deal with it, but business email, many other hacking types, but we've got good options, but business email compromise, it's just, you know, it's a confidence scam, it's using technology to mask your identity and impersonate someone else and just, you know, praise on, you know, not very exciting parts of the ecosystem, you know, accounts payable and, uh, you know, processes for changing who you, you know, the bank account details of organizations you do business with. Like, it's just not glamorous, but it is real big money. And I'm glad that Microsoft have, you know, put out some research and, you know, are giving it some focus, but it's just, they're hard problems to solve, you know?
0: Yeah, and you've really got to have good processes to catch it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's also just, you know, the real world is hard. I mean, if you want to buy something that is expensive, you know, like real estate or, you know, a car or something where you have to move a large amount of money around, all of those processes are just kind of not good enough for a hostile environment because Mm. there's a bunch of people for whom, you know, cyber is not at all their focus and the process for, you know, making a bank payment or an interbank payment or international payment are all different everywhere in every country and, you know, there's just a lot of moving parts and you know, there's a lot of opportunity in there to take people, you know, scam them, um, steal the money. Yeah. And, you know, the technology is just an enabler rather than the mechanism that's being used. So it's hard for us security people to deal with because it's kind of a societal... Structural thing rather than just a computer security problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Uh, let's have a look at this piece from Ars Technica, and I act, like you. I actually had to go and click on the paper to sort of get a better idea of uh, of what it was talking about. But a group of researchers have developed something called BrutePrint, where they take a cell phone, uh, Android in this case, because iPhone is like not susceptible to these attacks. Um, they plug in to where it's uh, fingerprint. Uh, reader connects to the you know the the main board uh, of the phone. They person in the middle it and perform a bunch of trickery, and they can actually bypass fingerprint unlocks by fooling the cell phone into not registering the number of guesses. Right, so they can they can actually brute force these. Um, Ah, uh, these fingerprint guesses. Cool research, actually, because because when I first saw this, it was in one of Catalan's uh, you know podcast scripts uh, for the for the for the news show. And uh, yeah, that's when I went off and actually read the paper and and it's it's cool,
1: yeah, it's a good, solid university research, you know of getting you know doing person in the middle on the spy bus between the reader and the upstream chips, you know actually intercepting that. Uh, and they had the you know a couple of cool, you know I guess zero day couple of bugs in. The mechanism that checks for the number of uh, number of tries, and if you can bypass that, plus you have a, a set of you know fingerprint databases that you can convert into the appropriate format and inject across the bus very rapidly, then yeah, you have a great mechanism for bypassing fingerprint locks. And you know the early discussions around biometrics and the idea that you know a big corpus of biometric data would be available to hackers in the future to use for exactly this kind of thing has totally come true, um, and you know, actually going, sitting down and doing this was just you know, really solid work. But, uh, you know, the interpretation of the paper, I think, uh, in the, you know, security news and social media and whatever else has been a little bit wonky in places.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that's always the case with any research like this, right? That's true, so yes. uh, that's just what happens. Um, interesting story here about ASUS routers, right? Because they the company pushed a bad auto update, routers patched, and then they kept... They, they dropped offline and kept falling over and whatever, and Asus came out and said, oh, sorry about that, we, we messed up a config file. The reason I wanted to talk about this one is because, you know, I've actually been saying in the show for a while that companies like Fortinet and others, people who make border devices that are getting people owned in ransomware attacks and whatever, <laughs> should maybe think about turning on some sort of automatic um, updates for, for these devices to better protect their customers. And I did say that, of course, you're going to have problems. You're going to occasionally brick one, uh, but the impact of that is lesser. Now, I know that these routers are not, you know, enterprise-grade uh, sort of VPN collectors and concentrators, so the impact here is not going to be as great. But this is a great example of where an update went wrong, but it got sorted out relatively quickly, and certainly the disruption was less than these people getting ransomware. So I'm yeah. I'm still absolutely in team on team auto patch for border network border devices. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, that was exactly the thought that I had as well. Like people are obviously whinging in forums about having their, you know, routers or their internet access, you know, being broken or periodically breaking. I think the routers were going into like a reboot loop periodically. They were they running out of, of RAM. they were running out of memory and uh, Yeah, running out of RAM. Um <laughs> and like, okay, that's bad, that's a pain. Um but it is still better than everybody getting ransomware. Um and that's the kind of alternatives that that you know, if we imagine that someone ransomwareed the entire Asus router fleet. Uh, and all the devices, you know, upstream like that would be way worse. Uh, yeah. And so, I would rather see them patching stuff and pushing out security updates um, or whatever else, and accepting that some breakage is going to happen. You know, that sort of you know move fast, break stuff, fix it, get on with life. You yeah. know that that approach works well. I mean, I I'm you know, reminded of DevOps places with you know like Chaos Monkey where it just like randomly goes around breaking stuff, and that makes you build more resilient infrastructure overall.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Pulse Secure, Fortinet, you know, a lot of these sorts of devices, they, I, you know, it's my opinion uh, that they, and I know it's a huge uplift to build this capability into a product. And I know that it's going to actually annoy a lot of your customers, but I still think it's what should happen. I don't think it's what will happen. I just think it's what should happen. It's one of those, yeah. let's throw it in that old bucket there.
1: Yeah. And I mean, at the very least, you can give people the option to opt out if they're really worried about their availability, but, you know, click through a checkbox, that seems fine to me.
0: Now, uh, this one, uh, I, I also saw this in Catalan's coverage of it. Uh, <laughs> Allwinner and Rockchip are these uh, Chinese companies that make Android-based like uh, uh, TV boxes, um, and they were selling them certified pre-owned, as we say. <laughs>
1: Yes, yes, uh, all winner OEM'd uh, Android TV devices, uh, media sticks, things like that, uh, being sold on Amazon with malware on it, the malware would download updates to itself, so they could basically do whatever they they wished, Uh, I think we've seen it being used for click fraud, uh, and things like that, so relatively low level as internet crime goes, but You know, these kinds of Android devices are super useful as orbs or bounce boxes or for your real crime as well. Um, So, yeah, interesting to see them pre-owned.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a big demand for this sort of stuff, right? Because you want to be able to bypass those impossible login checks and, you know, do all of that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's just funny that botnets now, they've moved from being like Windows XP machines to being... <laughs> Your smart TVs and whatever, right? Just and routers and whatnot, and that's just that's just how it be. Um, fin Seven, the you know legendary uh, online crime group, who used to you know own banks and do smart cybercrime. Um, they've been doing more and more ransomware lately. Uh, they've been linked both to uh, Clop. And this is a um, this is a recent uh, linkage. They've been linked to. They've been using the Clop ransomware, uh, and also Blackbaster and whatever. And just yeah, Fin7 are around. There's been some reports on them this week. I just thought they're worth mentioning.
1: Yes, and of course, uh, in the Microsoft's naming scheme, they're now called Sangria Tempest, which sounds like the thing that you would get at the seaside bar. So it does actually. I'm here for that. I could go with. I could go for one of them now. Yeah, after the show, I'll join you for a Sangria Tempest. Um, but yeah, they. I mean, they, they've got this sort of legendary status to them as being one of the real early innovators of you know, kind of person and browser malware and and early banking attacks. But yes, uh, slumming it down with the ransomware crews now, uh, which I guess they've been sanctioned and had all sorts of other bad things happen to them. So. Uh, I imagine you know, they're crying into the leather in their Lamborghinis
0: yeah yeah. Uh, and of course, we'll do our weekly ransomware wrap. Uh, just following up, Rheinmetall, the German defense contractor, its non-defense contract, a bit of its network, got ransomware by Blackbuster, and they've sort of, you know, uh, talked a bit about that. Um, the city of Dallas in the United States is still mopping up after a ransomware attack. Apparently, its court system is still, like, offline, uh, which is uh, not ideal. Uh, We've got a story here in the record from Adam Janowski about a health insurer talking about how it's, uh, you know, the patient information was stolen Uh, in a ransomware attack. We, of course, saw that here in Australia when um, uh, Medibank uh, got owned. Uh, What else have we got here? An Oklahoma allergy clinic uh, shut its doors and stuck a sign on the front door uh, saying that they were closing because of a cyber attack, which your comment on this one uh, in in our preparation document was, this seems suspicious
1: yeah some of the reporting around this does make it sound perhaps a little bit sus like they're trying to get out of business problems by claiming ransomware but we don't really we don't really know yeah. uh, but you know sucks to be someone who shows up to get allergy meds and I, uh, <sighs> the clinic door is closed
0: i got ransomware is the new my dog ate it Yes, uh, maybe yeah, exactly. right like yeah, yeah. <laughs> i wanted to come to work today but i got ransomware sorry i'll, I'll see you tomorrow <laughs> uh and yeah there's a uk steel industry supplier called vesuvius uh, apparently they've uh claimed that a cyber incident cost them 3.5 million pounds which is uh yeah a lot of pounds uh and john grieg at the record has a story about some researchers who infiltrated the Killin uh ransomware group and um you know, this, this happens somewhat regularly now that researchers just manage to get their way into these, like, admin panels and forums and whatnot and, you know, really give us some insight into the way these groups operate.
1: Yeah, it's always interesting seeing, you know, hard numbers and screenshots and so on. I think in this case it was what uh, Group IB uh, got up into yeah, their, yeah, uh, into their admin panels and helped themselves.
0: And we got some, uh, some modern-day Robin Hoods uh, tear assing around the internet as well, <laughs> uh, Adam, which is some... <laughs> group called, uh, yeah, Malice Locker have been, yeah, ransoming people, but like to get the decryption key, you have to give money to charity, not to them. <laughs> yeah,
1: this, this group has been attacking uh, Zimbra open source, like collaboration servers, which, you know... I, I mean, know, people anyone... running
0: that stuff deserve to be punished, I think is where I you're mean, going with
1: that. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it out loud, but that was what was going on in my head. Anyway, so yeah, they've been, uh, there's a group I think called Malice Locker uh, that have been, yeah, ransoming people and then telling them to pay a charity, which... I mean, you shouldn't ransomware people. That's bad. You shouldn't do that. But, I mean, I'm kind of here for it in a way of, you know, doing the ransom, you know, Robin Hood ransomware, uh, making people pay charities. But, uh, no, don't ransomware people. I mean, would, it would work if they were only
0: targeting evil corporations, That's right? Mm, yeah. But
1: maybe all corporations, maybe ownership of property is, is, is evil. You heard mm. it first on Risky Business. <laughs> Money is evil, Brad.
0: Adam urging hackers to rise up against <laughs> checks Notes. Property rights. (laughs) And we've got a funny one to end with today, Adam. uh, Joe Tidy from the BBC has uh, posted, he posted this one on Twitter. There's a guy who, (laughs) he's just pleaded guilty. This happened five years ago, but he's just finally pleaded guilty uh, to this crime now. The company, he's an IT security guy. The company that he worked for... Was getting ransomware and he broke into the mail server and like swapped the Bitcoin address for the attackers for his own in the hope that if the company paid it would send its money to him instead and he also registered an email account that was like a lookalike for the attackers account and started emailing management you know threatening them and telling them to pay uh, unfortunately he was using this email address from his house and uh, yeah not exactly a
1: master criminal and now he's in trouble not exactly I <laughs> You kind of do got to hand it to him, like the stones on, like, let's just log into the mail server and edit the email and stick my Bitcoin in there. Like, what a.
0: Well, you don't got to hand it
1: to him because it was dumb, <laughs> it didn't work, move. and now he's going to jail. I know, I know, but I just... Uh. That's actually
0: it for the week's news section, but we have a special guest joining us now. Chris Krebs is a co-founder of the Krebs Stamos Group, or KSG, and uh, Chris was also the first ever director of CISA. And he's with us today to talk about a few things. Uh, And the first thing we're going to talk about is what's happening in China. China, 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 China. There have been some changes to China's espionage laws that have got uh, uh, people rattled, particularly Western companies who are operating with a presence in China. And uh, we've also seen, along with these changes, we've seen some raids on the offices of Western firms, uh, due diligence firms, and whatnot. Chris, can you start by walking us through all of this? Cause it's um yeah, there's a
2: lot going on. Well, effectively what's happening here is that President Xi is really ratcheting down on foreign access to information in the country as well as information that can kind of that can leave the country. And so you're seeing this shift towards um, indigenization of certain key industries. And and some of this is like the big four auditing firms. So any Firm that's collecting a lot of information on Chinese companies. They're really trying to sever that outside dependency, create national champions. They're also very sensitive about uh, due diligence uh, firms operating within within China. You know that that's in, in fact what happened with uh, with Mint, which is one of those firms that got raided. My understanding is that they were doing some due diligence work on uh, related to to Uyghur related sanctions. Against Chinese firms' uh, supply chain uh, visibility, and uh, the Chinese didn't like that. So the Securocrats are taking over, and we're moving away from the era of economic interested or minded senior officials. And it's just honing in on the a core set of officials that are within uh, President Xi's circle. Mm. And and so you know what we're seeing firms out there do is really start thinking about. How do you segment off and focus any of your Chinese operations with the China for China approach? So you have Chinese indigenous managed service providers and other vendors, uh, and you're not relying on a foreign firm to provide a key service inside the country.
0: Let me ask you this, though, because the the raids that you just mentioned, they actually took place before the law changed, didn't they?
2: Well, again, it's been this kind of long shift towards a more Chinese-focused uh, economy there. You'll remember you know, four or five years ago, there were actually percentages and thresholds within key segments of the economy, banking and finance, for instance, where you would have to look at, okay, for this part of your operational tech stack, uh, not your operational tech stack, but your tech stack in general, you have to have Chinese uh, indigenous products or firms. And so this has been in place for quite some time, the authorities and the demand. We're just now seeing this acceleration.
0: This is going to have a cooling effect on people doing analysis work, on doing due diligence work, right? And I'd imagine that that sort of blinding is not exactly going to encourage a massive influx of foreign investment. Do you think perhaps that, you know, there's, a, there's so much ideology driving these decisions that they don't realize the knock-on effects this could have to the economy?
2: It's a, it's a little bit, I think, broader than that as well. They're, they're cleaning up some of the open source data and the data repositories in China and preventing foreign access, but also cleaning up some of the databases. So Georgetown University uh, here, in, here in Washington, D.C., um, their CSET group has been conducting a whole bunch of open source research on China for, for years, and suddenly they don't have access to those data repositories they, they previously had. So it's not just that you're blind in China, but now you're blind outside of China. And, and in fact, you risk, as you pointed out on the criminalization, you risk going to jail uh, for operations. And, and yeah, my understanding is that firms are thinking twice about what sort of operations and personnel they put in China. That said, that market is so massive that there's still a lot of interest in the financial sector, for instance, Um that, uh, th- that wants to go after those, those dollars. And so there is a tension. Uh, that's actually a, an area of focus uh, for the Chinese. Uh, it's the Select Committee on, it's got this long formal name, but the China Select Committee here in the United States in the House of Representatives, that they're really starting to put pressure on uh, technology, uh, financial services, uh, executives on continued investment and continued pursuing that market in China.
0: Yeah, I mean, you hear a lot of commentators say that, oh, doing business in China is, you know, a fool's errand because they're going to steal your IP and whatever. And, like, that—that—that that, that is a solid argument when it comes to IP-heavy industries. Um, also, information-based services like social media and whatever, you're going to have a hard time in China. But then you look at the success stories around companies like Yum Brands, right? They sell more KFC in China than they do in the United States, right? right. So, obviously, it's a big market and, uh, you know, there's a lot of money to be made there, Uh but yeah you you just think with these sorts of measures uh you know it's it's going to make people think twice about investing into a market that they're essentially not allowed to analyze and gather information on right that's sort of sort of where I was where I was going with that but look you you've been advising companies that have operations in China for a long time and you know in previous conversations you and I've had like off the show you've said that the advice Generally speaking, that you give to these organizations is you need to treat everything in China uh, more or less as if it's compromised. Treat it like an island. Is that the standard sort of boilerplate advice for anyone listening who's who's going to spin up an operation in China?
2: I think the boilerplate advice here is China for China. If you're operating within China, particularly if you're in an intellectual property uh, sensitive uh, sector, then all network operations that are inside China uh, are solely in China and have no real meaningful connection to uh, networks outside of China. And, and it creates some cultural issues, right? So if you're sitting uh, at headquarters in in New York and you get an email from a China, you know, Beijing-based employee, it looks like it's coming from an external sender. And that's really is what we're seeing here is these firms that are radically segmenting off Chinese network operations. So you cannot reach out and touch the global knowledge base uh, and and that's in part using the the laws in China as a both a sword and a shield so it's to prevent them from getting into your own operations but at the same time you're complying now effectively with the personal information protection law and other you know statutes and regulations that have been established over the last several years
0: so you think it can still be done in a way that won't threaten your broader operations, right? You can have a presence in China if you're very careful uh, uh, in doing that that won't bite you, uh, in those ways at
2: least. Yes, that's what we're seeing. Um, just about every firm that we're talking to uh, is moving down that path or has already gotten there. Uh, again, it's it's Chinese network se- uh, segmentation. There are, I think, some interesting wrinkles uh, or you know, in the actual implementation, do you, what is a trusted, credible, reputable MSP look like in China? You know, again, based on the lack of visibility into these firms, you, you don't have a really good sense of who you're doing business with. Um, And so I think that's one of the real challenges is really finding out who the trusted companies are that do business and provides those critical services, uh, the tech services uh, to firms that are setting up shop.
0: That pertains to the rules about you know using locally procured products and services, which is separate to these changes to the espionage uh, laws in China. I guess my question around that uh, is, there's a, you know they're, they're a little bit related in some ways uh, those two questions because say you want to go and investigate which MSSP is trustworthy, which ones do a good job, you know surely you risk if you're doing due diligence on a on a supplier you risk actually running afoul of some of those those espionage laws which are just now ridiculously broad you know is that a concern that's that that's popping up and this this is what i meant when i was talking about that blinding effect of essentially criminalizing market analysis right
2: i think that's the knock-on effect right i think that's a difficulty um in implementing this new strategy china for china companies are going to do it for a different you know, for, the, for, for other reasons, but as they get into the implementation to your point, you're you're kind of you're shooting in the dark here. You don't have necessarily a good sense of what the op- uh, the options are for firms to support. So yeah, I mean they' they're hampering their own market opportunities. I think the Chinese are by by restricting visibility and information on these the ability to research these firms.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I guess we've talked on the show a bunch of times about you know where there seem to be benefits to being uh, you know authoritarian government in the style of the, the CCP. Do you think, from a pure security perspective, that these are actually good outcomes? You know, maybe you know I'm sure there's been times where you think, man, it'd be real nice if we had that much control over our supply chain, over you know how who invests in our stuff. Like, do you think that there is some like, are the CCP and is that model better equipped to deal with some of the challenges that we have in InfoSec? Like, I'm not suggesting revolutions or anything, but like, it sometimes seems like there would be upsides to being on the other side of this.
2: Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, even as recently as uh, what this week, you've got ransomware attacks on Chinese organizations. So I I'm not sure that they're getting the desired effects they want from a pure day-to-day IT security perspective. Um, certainly I, I think they would benefit from continuing to allow Western firms in there that I think are you know from a defensive perspective probably a little bit more capable. Um, but you know I'm I'm not seeing anything that would suggest that there there there's a benefit to China and Chinese industry and, and companies as a result of this more aggressive approach.
0: Yeah, I think what Adam's question was really about there is when you were running CISA, were you thinking, damn, I wish I was running the, the, the equivalent agency in China because I'd be able to do all of this cool stuff just by, just by a stroke of my
2: pen? No, CISA, remember, is a uh, public-private partnership-based organization that depends on you know, these voluntary efforts, not a regulatory organization yeah but that's that's the point right like wouldn't it be great if
0: it was and you were in china and you had G behind you and you could just say that's it everyone has to use fido keys it's it's now you know or we send you to gulag
2: yeah i oh god the the concept of shifting CISA to a regulatory organization in any near term uh that makes my my mind just kind of flip upside (laughs) down it's just the 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 size and scope of the critical infrastructure problem or, you know, challenge here in the United States, it's so massive. And I would joke with Kieran Martin when he was running NCSE in the UK at the same time. You know, I'd love to have your problems, Kieran. I'd love to have those problems. It's just such a massive challenge here in the U.S.,
0: yeah, I mean, in, in Australia, we've literally got a crit- critical infrastructure protection law that allows the ASD to compel organisations to do a thing, like that's actually how they're <laughs> to do or not do a certain act. I think is the wording in the legislation, which is um, came in response to industry kind of resisting um, some regulations. They're like, okay, we're just gonna we're just gonna make it the law that you have to do what we say uh, if these conditions are met. Which I can't imagine that ever happening in the United States. And,
2: well, look, and I think Australia is a really interesting kind of um laboratory for uh more aggressive actions by the authorities. I mean you and I've talked again off the show about how aggressive they they're, they're l- trending towards at least from an offensive perspective, but also the regulatory perspective. It's a much more aggressive model and you know I think there is some some value there and it'll be interesting I think for the US, Canada and others to keep an eye and see how this goes and then take some lessons learned. I know there are some concerns In industry for instance that that the um the recent secure by design secure by default memo that came out of what like eight different agencies including um acsc um that 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 may turn into a mandate in in australia and so there's there's some concern that that we're kind of leading down that path i don't know if it's going to go there but nonetheless you you know
0: Heaven forfend, Chris, if we start demanding that uh, software being sold to our governments meets minimum standards of quality. I mean, that's, uh, that's <laughs> communism.
2: Yeah, it's, it, it's been an interesting couple of years in that kind of shift in demand.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, real quick, because we're running out of time here. Um, there is some CISA news this week, which is um, uh, there's a bunch of bills passing that give CISA new responsibilities when it comes to um, uh, a few things. Actually, protecting critical infrastructure, expanding the cybersecurity workforce. The one that I found interesting though was, uh, you know, they're getting a mandate to assist the you know open source community in in securing open source software. This to me seems like a great idea, and the reason I say that is because there is. There is no other ecosystem that is easier to assist than open source software because it's open. Like if you want to help open source, all you have to do is turn up and start committing changes, right? Like, And I think this is, you know... when you, when you put it like that, it's kind of surprising, isn't it, that it's taken until now for governments to sort of get serious about, hey, maybe we could just throw some resources at this um, and, and assist. I mean, is that going to be the plan here? And I know you're out of CISA, you're just a private citizen these days, but I figured you would have feelings about this.
2: Well, I think here's the here's the challenge, right? Um, all the, the bills that were passed this week, um, I think CISA pretty much has the general authorities to go out and conduct these activities uh anyway but but the priority list for SISA right is a hundred items long if not more it,
0: it's starting to look like the kev list yeah
2: yes <laughs> right um and when do things come off the kev list it's, it's questions yeah. like that when they're not exploited anymore i don't know but but the point is like the shopping list is super super long and you've got to set a You've got to set your priorities up and down that list and figure out which ones you're actually going to do that you're going to put people uh, against it, and that's one of the, the the issues with these bills is that all it does is say, "Sis, and now you have to do this. You have to set up this framework. You have to go conduct this assessment." Doesn't come with more people. Doesn't come with more money. So we've got some unfunded mandates, and and you know the the open source went to your point. It, it, it was sitting right there the whole time. It's easy, um, easiest of the bunch, and the mechanics and the relationships are already there and you, you've got some really good talent that has flowed into sis over the last several years. I guess I leave and people want to go work there or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, but they're, they, they've got some good, t- good people that are already prioritizing this sh- issue. And one, one guy that I think you should keep an eye on, uh, is, is Jack Cable, who I think everybody kind of at this point knows who Jack Cable is, but he's this little wonder Ken that has worked in DOD, worked on the Hill and he's 23 years old, something like that, but real, real strong talent there. And I think he's leading a bunch of these initiatives with Jen.
0: What do you think, Adam, of the idea of, you know, sort of government funded work just turning up in open source repos? Cause I just thought, I just think, you know, why not? And look, you know, to Chris's point, this is currently an unfunded mandate, but what do you think about the broader idea of, of governments doing that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think showing up and contributing is the best way to to work with open source, right? If you give them mandates from up top, then that will, you know, probably not get what you want. But showing up and contributing, that's what they ask for. Uh, so, But, I
0: mean, you can do that in open source in a way that you can't in the private sector. Yes. Like, there's a big problem with Fortinet getting people owned, but you can't send a bunch of, you know, government-funded coders to turn up on their doorstep and say, hey, we're here to fix your problems. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, it's just not how it works.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. open source is such a great environment for constructive contribution. And I think you know, if there was budget, that would be amazing, right, to show up yeah. and, and, you know, review people's auth and so on. And there's been plenty of other contributions. I mean, some of Google's work around, you know, securing open source infrastructure, et cetera, like they're used to these kinds of contributions coming from, you know, from industry, you know, corporate environments, yeah, academia. The, the problem cover?
0: with the industry contributions is they tend to have a pretty narrow focus on the stuff yeah. that they rely on, right? Like yeah. mostly, yes. But that's also um, the so stuff they dress that's it up as it altruism, changed. but there's some self interest there as well.
1: Yeah, of, of course. Yeah, and I think the you know the results of thinking about how Log4j went and what we could have done differently, you know, highlighted a bunch of these issues about where you know open source follows where there's interesting stuff to do and ancient Java login frameworks not interesting.
0: So, Chris, we're going to wrap it up in a second, but just while we got you here, uh, the, Biden's nominated uh, General Timothy Hogg uh, for the top position at NSA to replace Paul Nakasoni, who's stepping down. I believe you know him and uh, you rate him highly.
2: I'm uh, a huge fan of Tim. We, were, uh, we worked very closely in the 2018 election, and he was running the Cyber Command uh, element of the election security group over at the at the fort, um, under general Nakasone and worked closely with him, have, uh, stayed in touch. And I think this was kind of the, the worst kept secret in town that he was yeah. likely going to be the successor, uh, to Nakasone, but he's a, he's a solid operator has been in San Antonio working with one of the air force cyber wings for the last couple of years. So excited to get him back up here. And I think it sets in motion, a, an additional interesting set of decisions, including, with George Barnes, who's the deputy director at the NSA and effectively runs day-to-day operations for the NSA, who who's going to get that job? And is it you know friend of the show Rob Joyce? Is it someone else? So I think a lot of things are going to shift here. I would not expect much of a strategy shift, though. I think this persistent engagement, um, the defend forward uh, campaign that's worked so successfully in support of Ukraine. Um, following the Russian invasion, I think I think we would I think we'll continue to see a lot of that more muscular response by Cyber Command, um, and hopefully this rapid declassification of signals intelligence that we also saw um, under Nakasoni's command with the Russian invasion of Ukraine.
0: All right, well, Chris Krebs, thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk through all of that. Really interesting stuff. Uh, good to see you, and uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon.
2: All right, guys, thanks so much.
0: That was Adam Boileau and uh, Chris Krebs there. Big thanks to both of them. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Dan Guido of Trailer Bits. Trailer Bits is doing some consulting these days around AI system security, uh, but also AI system safety. And according to Dan... Safety isn't something people in security are accustomed to thinking about, and that needs to change in the looming AI age. Here is Dan Guido talking about all of that.
3: So one of the ways that I've been trying to think about Trilobits is that we reduce the risk of emerging technologies. And that's part of the reason why we jumped on things like zero-knowledge proofs and privacy-preserving encryption, as well as the whole blockchain industry. And now the next thing up is AI. So this actually isn't a new thing for Trilobits. We've been working on this for years. Uh, Back, I think, three years ago now, uh, we did the first project that I think everyone does in machine learning security, is we exploited a bunch of pickle files. We wrote what we thought was the the world's best uh, pickle file Swiss army knife, um, something that could reverse engineer, that could manipulate, that could analyze, that could inject uh, malicious content into pickle files. It's a symbolic execution, uh, like pickle emulator. It's it's really over the top and like true trail of its style. But since then, we've continued to work in that field and get a more sophisticated understanding of what it needs in order to be safe, Uh, which I I think is like, I I use the word safe here different than secure because I I think this is a big disconnect in the security community now that everyone else has started to come around to things that we've been working on for the last few years, is that safety for these systems is much more than safety against external inputs. Um, And it's not something that I think the security community gets yet. Uh, Like I think what's going on right now is people are cataloging a lot of like uh, uh, attacks that can happen. They think about this prompt injection thing, and they think about these pickle files, and they think that if we just catalog all these possible harms, or rather all these possible attacks, that we can construct a bunch of mitigations to protect against them. But it's really like an ad hoc approach that isn't going to result in an AI system that meets the sort of safety requirements that its users would have of it. Um, so we've been combining security and safety together into a consulting practice that I think is brand new uh, that can help address some of these risks for our clients.
0: It seems like there's a lot here that people haven't quite thought about. I mean, like you just sit down, start thinking about it, and it starts expanding out pretty quick.
3: There is a lot there in order to deploy one of these systems. They're, they're fantastically complicated with many different um, interactions to the physical world, right? Like we might be collecting some sensor data that gets translated into some digital format that gets put into a machine learning model that was trained on a bunch of data that provides an output that then reintegrates with the physical world on the other end. Um, And each of these things is a technology system that requires us to think about not just the external security risks of like who can hack this thing, but also whether there are harms that are absent a, a threat actor, which is new, right? Like that's not something that security engineers really think about. Like, it is not a threat actor that caused uh, Google to accidentally label black people as gorillas back in 2016, right? Like, there, there, there wasn't some kind of magic series of API calls that happened in order for that to have caused a, a really serious problem for a significant user group of of people that depended on that AI product. So kind of the way that we've been thinking about security for these systems is that First off, there's um, the, the CIA, like the, the confidentiality integrity of the, of the models themselves, right? So there's uh, issues with things like um, theft of data, uh, membership inference, uh, re- re-identification of data, model extraction, um, those sorts of things all fit into the confidentiality bucket. Uh, there's also integrity issues. That's where you talk about things like data poisoning. Like if we can manipulate the model by giving it training data that it... it, it it um wasn't expecting or that we could control. I mean on, on,
0: honestly as we've been talking I've been thinking what if you've got a staff member who just wants to be an ass and you know starts feeding it bad stuff right like the internal mm-hmm. model at a company like how do you unpack that I suppose you can roll it back but you know this is all stuff that's got to be thought about right
3: yeah i i mean absolutely like there there needs to be a more sophisticated approach towards resolving the security and safety risks of these systems than just whatever the topic of the day is. You can't just think about like, oh, well, prompt injection is trending on Twitter. What are we doing about prompt injection? That doesn't really result in a secure AI system. Um, So once we get beyond this CIA of the model, we we also start thinking about the operations pipeline that surrounds the product. Um, And this is really where that pickle file thing begins, but it doesn't end, right? Um, That these uh fantastic systems that have uh that they need to get kind of coordinated and orchestrated in order to produce these really um you know really useful ai models uh are are built on technology that hasn't really ever been reviewed by a security engineer and typically don't have strong authentication authorization don't have really good uh you know control of the file formats that they consume and generally have a lot of the same uh, like application security, network security risks that other technology products do, but it's a green field today, and out of the box, these systems are not really secure. You need to think through uh, what mitigating controls for them look like. Um, so th- there's really a lot here from an internal security standpoint. Um, like there, there's a lot of, of of stuff to to play with uh, if you're a yeah. security engineer that's working on this this technology area right now.
0: I mean, would you agree that, you know, one of the big issues here is the unpredictability of machine learning based things, right? Because like we don't, we lost observability, you know, a long time ago. So a lot of these harmful effects that tend to crop up when we're dealing with ML and AI, right? A lot of these harmful effects are not things that can be easily foreseen, which is what makes building controls to rein that in much more difficult. Like, would you agree with that?
3: Uh, Yeah. And that's because systems today don't have a precise specification of what they're supposed to do. Um, Like once you actually figure out like, hey, uh, like, for instance, um, you know, if you're building a self-driving car, you end up creating something called a operational design domain. You, You end up building something called an operational design domain that that specifies, hey, here is what I expect the car to do. I expect the car to be able to switch lanes in traffic on a clear day without any rain. Right. And in order to do that, there, there are a whole bunch of flow down requirements that come from it that I can evaluate the performance of my automated self-driving system against. And today we, we just don't have that. So in the in the lack of those constraints, any sort of security approach you come up with is going to be completely ambiguous. Um, you're just going to be responding to whatever's trending on Twitter for this community. You're going to be responding to uh, prompt injection. Or you're going to be responding to oh uh, you know we shouldn't use pickle files you got to use safe tensors like okay great like that is definitely a thing that you should do but it does not come up with a security strategy that helps you avoid whatever the risks are um yeah and yes, i mean it sounds like what you're saying
0: is-, is that when it comes to trying to make the you know the the big everything chat gpt style models safe like that's going to be hard um whereas when it's coming to more corporate you know niche applications or internal uses, like this is something that should be achievable.
3: Yeah. I mean, even for the case of just like image generation, you've got stable diffusion where you can give it a prompt and it gives you an image. Like that is a constraint that is much tighter than chat GPT, um, where there's a lot less stuff that could probably go wrong, that, that hopefully it could not go wrong when, when you're dealing with an image generation framework. Uh, but But really, if you're using these things for a business need, um, then you should be able to define what that business need is, what good performance looks like, what bad performance looks like, what the safety requirements are based on what it should do, and then construct some guardrails around it that ensure it gets there. Uh, That's that's the thing that we are helping people do when, when they consult with us.
0: Let me ask you this, right? You're, you're founding a, you know, you've founded a consulting practice that's designed to help here. What sort of customers are coming to you for help and what are they asking you to do?
3: Yeah. So right now we've been working with some really large technology companies that have accumulated a lot of data themselves and are starting to apply uh, AI tools for the benefit of themselves from a business operation standpoint, as well as for their clients. You know, you think about big financial companies, fintechs that, Uh, have, have tons of information about the way that we spend money. These are companies that have already been applying AI, but then are also thinking about acquiring a ton of companies that have popped up over the last six months that do AI. And there's going to be various degrees of thinking around safety and security among those acquisitions. So we've been positioning ourselves as helping people come up with a security strategy and then building the tools in that they need to operationalize it so that they can secure their own operations, and they can also help ingest this this new influx of uh, tools that they'll either buy or, or acquire over the next few years.
0: All right. Well, Dan Guido, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the show this week to have a chat about all of that. Very interesting stuff.
3: Thank you, Patrick.
0: That was Dan Guido of Trailer Bits there. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Trailer Bits for being a long-term sponsor of the Risky Business Podcast. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow in the Risky Business News Feed with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business Podcast, which I co-host with Tom Uren. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.